Well, Happy New Year. Thanks for worshiping with us today. I hope uh, eight days into this new year, you're settled in. Uh, maybe you've already stopped writing 2022 on everything that you've dated by now. I don't know about you, but maybe you've kind of really found a lot of fruit so far in those uh, New Year's resolutions or goals that you wrote down to embark upon this you know, blank slate of a new year. Or maybe by now they've already all fizzled out and you're glad that that uh, membership to the gym was a 30-day trial, right? Uh, you know, as we get going into this 2023, uh, by now you have probably heard that we want to, this year to be focused on learning how to abide by being with God, being with others, being sent. That's our focus as a congregation for this coming 12 months. And we really believe in the mission that God has, that he wants to reconcile all things to himself, to return them to their really, re, uh, restore them to their created state, the way they intended to be from the very beginning. And that mission involves us making disciples of all people by taking the good news to the entire world. And we here at Crossroads think the best way that we could contribute to that mission is by helping people live and love like Jesus. Over the coming months of 2023, we really want to go deeper in God's word and prayer. We really want to invest in relationships. We also want to all identify our place in God's mission. And to be frank, the overwhelming response to those type of things from the Western church, as well as many that make up our congregation, is this. Oh, oh man, that sounds great. Uh, what's next? It's kind of this attitude that what the Scrabble dictionary calls, meh, it's kind of a who cares? Is that really significant? Should I really care? That mindset is much more permeating than just here within the body of Christ. I think it's wreaking havoc on our culture all the way around. Now, I'm no sociologist, but some of the casual observations I make about this meh attitude in our world today contains this. There's a shortage of workers in every context of the workplace. Restaurants, uh, schools, factories, healthcare, trades. There seems to be plenty of jobs available, just very little people who are interested in working. There's a lack of interest in high school sporting athletes, athletics, not just uh, among the students, but also within the community. There's a growing number of teenagers who have no interest in getting their driver's permit or their driver's license. There is a strong emphasis on mental health and coping mechanisms to deal with anxiety and depression, all coming from a source of this. We know that something is wrong. We're not really sure what to do about it. And maybe worse yet, we really don't know if we even care. When I think about this condition, it brings me to a point of, like the rest of us, pointing fingers at, at the things in our society. It could be the breakdown of the family unit. It could have been soaring inflation. It could be the rise of violence. It could be the moral failures of leaders. It could be the ineffective systems and structures in government. It could be a worldwide pandemic, right? But I'm more concerned of our posture than the source. Theologian Uche Anazor, he works at Biola University in Southern California. He made some similar observations in a book he wrote called Overcoming Apathy. And he also did some introspection into his own soul to kind of see, like, where is this attitude really coming from in his life and in the world around us? And he thought back to one of his favorite sitcoms on television, show when he was in his early adulthood. It was the show Seinfeld. Do we have any Seinfeld friends or fans in here? All right, yeah. 
He recalled that some of his favorite moments of television came at the hands of Seinfeld. And in its height in the 1990s, 30 million viewers watched weekly. That was well before you could actually stream the show anytime that you really wanted to watch it. The final episode, there were 76 million viewers who turned in just for the finale. Comedian Jerry Seinfeld played himself, and there was a supporting cast that included George, played by Jason Alexander, Elaine, that was played by Julia Louise Dreyfus, and then the neighbor that Jerry had from across the hall, known as Cosmo Kramer, played by Michael Richards. Over the nine seasons, there were 180 episodes, and these four just basically dialogued about the minutia of daily life and found humor and significant, found significance in things that were seemingly insignificant. In fact, Seinfeld has been called a show that was about nothing. Despite all this, it's quoted often. There's still a very cultish following, even years into syndication, and it became a cultural phenomenon. The brilliance of the show was actually revealed in one of the episodes in season number four. The show was called The Pitch. And Jerry was proposing that this group of friends would pitch a TV pilot to some TV executives. Among their conversation that was littered with this um, wildly witty banter, uh, George came up with a proposal. He says, this is it. This is the show. And Jerry's like, what's the show? This right here. Talking. And Jerry said, talking about what? And Jerry said, George said, about nothing. And Jerry said, the show's about nothing? Yes, the show is about nothing. They got interrupted and there were a few sidebars, but later in the episode, Jerry comes back to the conversation. He says, I still don't know what the idea is. And George says this, the idea is nothing. And Jerry says, it's about nothing? And George says, yes, it's about nothing. Jerry says, we walk into a TV executive's office and we say, we have an idea about a show. It's a show about nothing. And George says, exactly. Jerry says, the show's about nothing. And George says, you're getting on to it. And Jerry says, I think you might have something here. There was actually an inside joke at play during this episode because the writers of Seinfeld were actually giving you a little bit of behind-the-scenes peek of their entire intent of the show. Now, the show really wasn't about nothing. The show really was about something. And that something was taking a nose-thumb look at our society and even television conventions. And they were saying that they're really, we're going to just celebrate that there is significance in the insignificant. In fact, they poked fun at things like family and social concern. They poked fun at things like faith, even the Holocaust, they made it popular and even acceptable to celebrate the insignificant things, things like finding a close parking spot, the awkwardness of a close talker, maintaining the high score on Frogger, which was one of my favorite episodes. On the series finale, this famous group of friends were arrested for what is called breaking the Good Samaritan Law which actually requires bystanders to intervene when somebody is in distress. And these four were arrested for what's called criminal um, indifference. They spent a year in jail. And the final episode is a scene of these four friends sitting in a jail cell, all commenting about a button that was on George's shirt, which ironically was the very first episode of the whole sitcom. Seinfeld made it fashionable to not care about significant things, to treat them with a 
attitude. And I would say that things have only spiraled downward since then. There's ramifications to this type of meh attitude in the world around us, to significant things like relationships or concern for others, to our work, to our meaningful contributions, certainly to faith. And it not only lingers, it's infested our minds and our hearts. And it might wreak the most havoc when it comes to our relationship with God. We felt the need before we embarked on this journey of learning how to abide to first take some honest self-assessment of where we actually find ourselves. This meh attitude actually has a big word for it, and that big word is apathy. Apathy is the lack of interest in or concern for the things that others find moving or exciting. It's the absence or suppression of passion, emotion, or excitement. It's not a modern-day phenomenon. I mean, certain Greek philosophers in antiquity thought without passions, such as love or fear or grief, anger, envy, lust, or pain, without pleasure, that was a desirable state. Stoics even viewed this passionless existence as flourishing. They felt they were not vulnerable to the ups and downs of life. They viewed themselves as self-sufficient. Some ancient monks, even some early church fathers, some theologians, were influenced by these philosophers and they began to project this emotionless state on God himself, saying that he was impassable, unaffected by the things outside of him or by emotions, especially those that might be unbecoming of him. Now, Scripture says that God is immutable, which means he never changes. He's unchanged over time. It also says that he's infinite. He is immeasurable. He's unlimited, not merely in size, but also in his very being. He has no limitations. He is absolute perfection. If God is all of these things, then he never ceases to be something that he isn't already. There's never a moment where God has waited to be activated into something more than he already is. He is never more alive than he has always been. And God is not limited by emotions, but he's also not empty of them either. Now, at first blush, we might find ourselves a little resistant to recognize this or apathy in our own selves. We might not want to acknowledge that it exists. When we think about the significant things in our life, such as relationships or family or faith, but do our actions actually reveal our attitudes and our state of heart when we seemingly either have a lack of motivation or interest in things that are significant? I mean, we find ourselves occupying our time with social media scrolling or media streaming instead of quality time with our spouse, with our kids, with other important relationships. We'd prefer to write a check than to volunteer our time in our kids' activity or at school or at a local nonprofit or even at the church. We fill our schedules with endless pursuits of things like gym memberships to make ourselves healthy or social clubs are gathering to expand our network, or we find ourselves thinking we have to buy certain things or experience certain things that really have no personal meaning to ourselves, yet we chase those things because we think they're significant to someone else, to make ourselves look better in someone's eye, to create a persona. We set our hearts and our affections on things that that were never meant to satisfy, Cheap substitutes for the soul-feeling nourishment that is offered from God's Word and His Holy Spirit nurturing a relationship with Him. In many ways, we've been lured 
into apathy by insignificant things that at the end of the day leave us tired, anxious, hopeless, and maybe worst of all, numb. You know, maybe you have a meh attitude toward this new year because you really don't expect anything different than what actually happened last year. As I watched the events in my own life of 2022 unfold, by about mid-year, I found myself in a pretty deep place. I wouldn't say dark. There was a flicker of hope at all times. But I did find myself feeling distracted, sometimes aimless, fearful, lackadaisical, sometimes just going through the motions, sometimes cynical, all kind of leading me toward this place where I just didn't know if I really wanted to care. Being in this state and leading your family spiritually and having a responsibility to lead God's people is quite a conundrum, I'll be honest. The leadership retreat that we had in August of 22 came at a really good time for me because it forced me to begin to think about this hard shell that was forming around my heart and see what I could do to break through it so that it would not lead any more toward apathy. Many promises of scripture that were focused on this idea of abiding caught my attention. I find myself in the midst of some very familiar words that come from one of my favorite books of the Bible. Now I wanna be clear, all the books of the Bible should be our favorite. They're all helpful and useful. Even Numbers and Leviticus, when you get to those and you're reading through the Bible plan in a year, don't quit, please. Keep pushing through, all right? But I really love one of Paul's letters in the New Testament. Paul wrote four letters in the New Testament while he was actually incarcerated. They're called his prison epistles. They include Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. I actually took a class in college that was specific to these four prison epistles. And I remember during that experience in my early 20s, man, God's word came alive for me as I walked through those four letters and the words that Paul had to say to each of those groups of believers. And as I read through those words again, something began to happen in my heart once again. As I was prayerfully considering what to teach in 2023 about how to abide, I was led to first address in my own life and maybe in yours too, this apathetic spirit that we all might need to consider. And I think the words of Paul will help us kind of get back alive again. Now, at this moment in Paul's life, he was incarcerated. He was most likely in Rome. He was awaiting an appearance and a trial before Caesar. This moment in Paul's life is written by Luke in Acts 28, if you want to read about it. He's most likely accompanied, some people even think, chained to a Roman soldier in this moment. But he was actually living on his own in a home, and he was allowed visitors. One of those visitors is a man who came from Philippi. His name was Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus had brought a financial gift to Paul to help sustain him while he was imprisoned. He had to provide for his own needs. Many think that Philippians was actually a very long thank you note from Paul back to the Philippians to tell them thank you for their continued partnership and, and faithfulness and friendship. You'll hear about a very special relationship that Paul seems to have with the Philippians as we read through uh, the book of Philippians, starting even this morning, as we focus on a prayer that Paul prayed for the Philippians. Now I want you to understand that this prayer helps move us from apathy towards abiding. It will help move us from a focus on insignificant things to things that really matter. I think Paul's prayer helps faith connect to our life. 
Let's look at the whole first chapter, first 11 verses at least. Paul's writing to the Philippians. They're there on the screen for you. Follow along. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from this first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about you, Paul says, since I have you in my heart, whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, Paul says, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what's best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We notice that Paul addresses everybody at the church at Philippi, the congregation as well as the spiritual leaders there. He speaks about how grateful he is about their partnership in the gospel. He says we all share in God's grace and the work of the mission of God. There seems to be a deep sense of gratitude in Paul's heart and a strong desire to see God continue the work that he had began in each of them. If you want to see some of the amazing things that happened in Philippi while Paul was ministering there and planting the church there, you could check that out in Acts 16. In verse 6 of Philippians 1, Paul speaks a, a strong word of confidence and encouragement over the people from Philippi, stating that God has started a good work in them, and he, meaning God, will be faithful to see it to completion. It begs this question, like, what is this good work that Paul's referring to? What's well, the good work of salvation? God's good gift that's given freely to all through the death and resurrection of Jesus. In every letter that Paul writes, it is laced with the good news of the gospel. It's clearly presented, helping people, all people understand, that salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ. That Jesus came from heaven to earth for a mission. And that was to reconcile all things back to God. And he did that by becoming a sacrifice, a substitute to pay the penalty for your sins and for my sins by dying on a cross. And the good news is that's not the end of the story. He was buried in a tomb, but three days later he came back to life, proving that he conquered both sin and death. That is the good news. That is the gospel story. And the salvation that God offers through that is so undeserved for all of us. Yet it brings grace. And it also brings peace. Salvation begins God's great work in all of our lives. But it's not a one-time decision. It's not something you say a prayer for or raise your hand and that's all. It actually begins there, but it continues until we are all brought to completion. And that completion looks like being conformed into the image of Jesus. If any of you are there already, you should be preaching today and not me, all right? God says that's the good work that began and God is going to keep to completion. He's going to keep working that. He'll bring it to the completion actually when the day of Christ Jesus comes. When Jesus returns to our world and brings all those who have surrendered themselves to him as Savior and Lord. And we will live with God forever from that point forward. All this work 
is God's work. But it requires a response, a participation from us. And that's what Paul prays for, for the Philippians. And I think he's praying for that even for you and me today. Let's look back at Paul's prayer. Paul says, this is my prayer, that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you would be able to discern what is best, that you would be pure and blameless until the day of Jesus, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's walk back through that prayer just to take home some of these nuggets that would maybe help rattle our apathy and move us toward abiding. Paul says, I pray that your love, your love would abound more and more. It would continue to grow. It would be overflowing. There would be more and more of it. What's that love for? Well, it's a love for God, but it's also a love for others. You cannot separate those two things. Jesus said, all of the law wraps around these two things, a love for God and a love for others. Jesus is quoted by Matthew in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, Jesus says, and the second is like it. Most translations say is equal to it. You can't separate them. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Did you notice all of the all statements in there? It seems like there is a capacity that many of us have not reached yet. In fact, all of us. There we should be growing. We should be adding to it. We should never be satisfied or complacent. Paul prays further love to grow in two specific ways. And the first of that is in knowledge and depth of insight. You know, we often think of love as an emotion. It's not something that we have to think about, we just feel, right? Well, when we don't engage our brain in loving, we don't really truly love. In fact, we call it being dumb in love or head over heels. When we say we've fallen in love with someone, but we really don't even know them. True love requires full knowledge. Every relationship that is experiencing true love is based on full knowledge. That's true with your spouse. That's true with your kids. That's true with your neighbors or your coworkers. You cannot truly love someone until you fully know them. And what that requires is to love them regardless, right? I know it does on my end of the stick with my wife. She has to truly love me because she fully knows me. And that's the good, bad, and ugly that comes with Phil Heller, right? Paul says, I want your love to grow in knowledge, depth of insight. This is how God chooses to love us. Despite our failures and our shortcomings, God chooses to pour out his love on us lavishly, not ignorantly. And he does that to give us an example of how to love others. It's actually a state of being more than it is a feeling. It says that the Bible says that God is love and that's how we should love him and others. The more we know about God, the more our love for him will grow. Which begs the question, well, how do we get to know God more? Well, one of the best ways to get to know God more is by engaging in his word, the Bible. That's why for this year, we're challenging our entire congregation to read through the entire Bible in this year. There's 357 days left, right? And we've chosen a reading plan that we provide for you to, that will give you an assignment every day to read. And by the end of 2023, you will have completely read through the entire Bible. We want to do that so that we can know God more. 
so that we can be with God. We learn to know God's character. We learn to hear his voice. We see his will and his way for our lives by reading his word. I challenge you, whether you've read the Bible before or maybe you've never read the Bible at all, to engage with us in this daily Bible reading plan. You can find the actual plan through the YouVersion Bible on our website at ccgo.com forward slash info. Uche Anazor in his book, Overcoming Apathy, says one of the remedies for apathy is to develop a regular habit of reflection and meditation on God's word. We want to help you overcome apathy and abide by engaging in God's word. Reading God's word will give us spiritual insight. We'll be able to see with the eyes of God. One of the new realities in my life in 2023 is that I have to wear my glasses a lot more than just when reading or preaching. It's come with some uh, ridicule from my middle child, my son. In fact, the other night we were at a restaurant and I didn't have my glasses with me and I could not make anything out on the menu or the check at the end. And Kate piped up, he goes, hi, I'm dad, and took the menu and stretched it as far <laughs> as he could. I said, you're not funny, you're a punk, is what I told him. <laughs> but he was right, right? You know, so many of us view the world with distortion. And it's, it's because of the sin nature in us. And when we see the world and we see others that way, it often leads to misunderstanding and anger and conflict, disappointment, resentment, and even a little hopelessness. And that's why God's word coupled with the counsel of the Holy Spirit helps us learn what the heart of God is. We, we know his way and his wills for our life and for the world around us. And as we understand as well as experience God's love and his wisdom, we actually then know how to love God in return because we are fully knowing him so that we can love him more. And that's true about others around us as well. The second thing that Paul prays that their love would grow in is discerning what is best. This is the ability to decipher not what's just right, but actually what is best. One translation says this is to pursue what really matters. We live in a world with blurred and distorted moral issues. And you and I have to understand not just what's right, but what's best. Not just what's right, but how to apply what's right in every context of our life. And that comes not through Google or by popular opinion, but from truth. And the only place that truth is truly found is in God's word. Paul says the result when you and I grow in our love, when it abounds more and more, we will be pure and blameless. Now, this doesn't mean perfect. The original word speaks more of being sincere or authentic. The actual word is translated without wax. That kind of makes you scratch your head a tad bit. Like, why would it be without wax? Well, in the ancient world, when someone went to buy a piece of pottery, pottery often had uh, imperfections, or maybe the person who threw the pot, not like threw it, but made the pot, maybe there was a crack in it. And so they would actually take wax and put it in all the imperfections, sealing off all the cracks, and then they would paint over it. And so if you wanted to make sure that your pot, your piece of pottery was, was worth your investment, you would actually take that piece of pottery out into the sunlight and let the sunlight heat it up. And if there was wax in the pottery, it would start to melt. And that you would know then if your investment was worth it. Paul says, I want you to be pure and blameless because your love for God and others is growing 
And that, that blameless, it means that you would have pure motives. It literally means that you would not put in the way of someone anything that would make them stumble. That's what Paul prays would be fruit that would be growing in your life because your love is growing for God and others. Paul says there's another result. You'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. When we think about that fruit, it's maybe best pictured when we think about Paul's contrast in Galatians 5, where he contrasts a person who's controlled by their sinful nature with a person who's controlled by the Spirit. I chose this translation from the message because I think it puts it into some powerful words. Hang with me as we read through Galatians 5 from the message. Paul says this, It's obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, an all-consuming yet never satisfying wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious, vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community. Paul says, I could go on. This isn't the first time I've warned you, you know, about this type of living. Paul says this, if you use your freedom in this way, you'll not inherit God's kingdom. But what happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. And then he talks about how this comes about. He said legalism is helpless in bringing this about. It only gets in the way. But among those who belong to Christ, everything connected with getting our own way and mindlessly responding to what everyone else calls necessities is killed off for good. It's crucified. Since this is the kind of life we've chosen, hopefully, the life of the Spirit, let us make sure that we just don't hold it as an idea in our heads or a sentiment in our hearts, but work out its implications into every detail of our lives. That means... We'll not compare ourselves with each other as if one was better or another worse. We have far more interesting things to do with our lives. Each of us is an original. I wish you could just take about 10 minutes to let all those words sink from your head to your heart. Paul's describing a choice that exists between for all of us. It's really a choice of apathy. Just let the world have its way in your life, or let sin wreak havoc in your life. Or surrender yourself to the lordship of Jesus. Let the Holy Spirit take control of your life and just watch what happens. Paul describes the fruit of both. It comes down to a choice that you and I make. Who's going to control our life? When we look at John 15 later throughout this year, you're going to see that Jesus talks a lot about the fruit that is produced by abiding in him. I just couldn't leave this passage without just pointing out two last things. And the first of them is this. Paul uses this phrase, until the day of Christ. 
There seems to be a fixation in Paul's letters, especially the one to the Philippians, about the day he dies or the day that Jesus comes back, one or the other. You know, over the holidays, uh, the Hellers took it pretty easy. We spent lots of time with family, but we also ate really unhealthy food. I didn't shave much, and we watched a lot of football, right? And I was watching Monday Night Live when DeMar Hamlin collapsed on that field from a typical football play. I don't think when DeMar woke up Monday morning, he thought, today might be the day my heart stops. Hope I've lived a good life. Actually, based on some of the stories about DeMar, it seems to be a pretty all-around good guy. But none of us are guaranteed even this day, Sunday, January 8th, or the year to come, right? None of us know when today might be our last day or this might be the first day of the rest of eternity, right? And Paul writes this prayer and prays from the bottom of his heart, this prayer for people he loved dearly, so that they would live every day with that day in focus. Paul says, let your lives be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Let your love grow more and more so that when that day comes, whether your last day or the day Jesus comes back, you're ready. You're waiting. You're prepared. So don't stop. Don't settle. Don't get discouraged. Don't give up or quit. Don't become apathetic. Keep growing, keep loving, keep serving until then. And Paul says, make it all to be to the glory and praise of God. You will find no other higher calling or purpose in life. Nothing will be more meaningful or fulfilling than living out that purpose, giving glory and praise to God. It's why you were created in the very first place. That's why Paul tells the Colossians in Colossians 3, set your heart and minds on things above, on things that really matter, the significant the eternal things. We bring glory and praise to God the most when we live like him and when we love like him. It shows people God's character and his desires for the world around us. It's this for what we were created and I know that the world has never more needed to see who God is. Now is no time to be apathetic. So my challenge to all of us is to take Paul's prayer and pray it for ourselves. I would ask you today, maybe as soon as you get home or certainly before you go to sleep tonight, you would just take Paul's prayer and make it a prayer for yourself. God, would you help my love for you and my love for others to abound more and more? God, make it not just some ooshy-gushy feeling, but help it be so crystal clear in my mind and my heart that I would truly love the way that you love, that I would be able, God, you would help me discern what is best in every situation so that I would not only choose what best, but my life would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that doesn't come on my own, it comes from you, through the example and through the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that my life, till the day I meet you face to face, would bring you glory and bring you honor. I would challenge you to make that your prayer. I'd also challenge you to make that the prayer you pray for your spouse, for your children, for your boss, for your coworker. You'd pray it for your neighbor. You'd pray it for the person sitting to your left and to your right. You'd pray it for the person you meet in the atrium today. You'd pray it for the person that God places in your path tomorrow. And what I love most about that prayer is that Paul was confident that God would answer it. And so am I.
Let's pray that prayer right now. Just do it on your own. You've heard it. I'll just give you a few moments to pray that prayer for yourself. God, from the very first day you created all of us, you began this good work in us. For many in this room, God, you have brought us to a place of salvation through faith in Christ. And you are continuing that work until it's fully completed, till we are fully conformed, conformed into the image of Jesus. God, my prayer is for anybody who hasn't asked you to be their Savior and Lord, that that would happen today. And I pray that through the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.